The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad Are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, July 23rd, the Boss Lady in Crisis edition. I'm Elizabeth Newcamp. I write the homeschool and family travel blog, Dutch Dutch Goose. I'm the mom to three littles, Henry eight, Oliver six, and Teddy three, and I'm located in Navarre, Florida. I'm Jamila Lemieux, a writer, contributor to Slate's Care and Feeding Parenting column, host of Slate's The Kids Are Asleep evening chat show, and mom to Naima, who is seven, and we live in Los Angeles, California. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm a writer for Slate and the author of the book, How to Be a Family. I'm the dad of Harper, who is 12, and Lyra, who's 15, and we live in Arlington, Virginia. Today on the show, we have a question from a boss who is trying to figure out how her company can support employees who are caring for kids. And we'll be talking about student loan debt with Slate's Rachel Hampton. For a special project at Slate, Rachel spent a year polling hundreds of people about how student debt shaped their lives. She has some advice for parents sending their kids to college about deciding when and if debt is worth it. And as always, we have triumphs and fails and recommendations. Jamila, do you have a triumph or fail for us this week? This week, I say that I have a triumph. I launched a new show. It went interestingly, but I did it. Um, (laughs) It happened. It was fun. It was very hot in my house. My first guest, Roy Wood Jr., was great and had really great, strong internet and mine for some reason, for the first time ever, and you all are looking at me on Zoom on Wi-Fi, I was on Ethernet and still managed to look like I had a dial-up disc from 1996 to connect. We did a test today and it looked totally fine. So hopefully for this week's episode, which is tonight, Thursday night at 10 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Pacific. We'll be streaming live on Facebook. And we have a pretty cool guest this week, too. Last week, we had Roy Wood Jr. from uh, The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. And this week, we have retired porn star and uh, proud grandmother, Cinnamon Love. You, like, rolled with everything so well. Like, you were just like, all right, this is, my internet is weird, and I'm going to be great anyway. Thank you. (laughs) Just another rich source of comedy. Thank you. It was, you were just so calm about it. I had no idea until we were texting later and you said you were nervous about it. I was like, she is so calm. Thank you. I was nervous about everything. And I set up, I got a teleprompter app on a second phone that I use. So I had my teleprompter going and then it started moving way too fast. And I was like, wait, no. And I had my lights kind of hooked up as, you know, as well as I can. I definitely need a few more tech things around here, but um, we're making it work. It's fun. People think teleprompters are easy, but my one experience ever reading a teleprompter is it's impossible. It is like... The amount of practice it takes, you would probably be able to just memorize your words. Right. Because yeah. <laughs> it's always too fast or too slow. And when it's too slow, you're just sitting there like, mm-hmm. And uh-huh. also. Uh, that's a good triumph. You launched a show. Like, great. Yeah, good job. Thank you. Yeah, great job. Thank you. Dan, triumph or fail? I also have a triumph. I did not launch a widely beloved internet show. However, I did let Harper do my makeup. So Harper mm-hmm. is currently on a huge makeup kick. Longtime listeners may remember when it was slime. Now it's makeup. I think they give her similar things, <laughs> mixing and blending and doing stuff <laughs> with her hands. Um, and she asked all of us to do our makeup a lot. 
mostly everyone just says no. Lyra says, hell no. Uh, <laughs> Alia lets her do it sometimes. Harper always wants to do it before Alia has work calls, and Alia's like, no. Uh, I usually say no because I just don't, I don't like the feeling of makeup on my face. And I also get super freaked out whenever anyone is anywhere near my eyes. I could never do contacts. When anything gets near my eyes, I get like all oogie and I just can't take it. But last week she asked and asked and asked and I had the day off. So my triumph was I sucked it up and let her do my makeup. Now this is different from the old days when, and you guys may have this experience with your younger kids, where she would just slather makeup all over me and I would look like a clown at the end. And that I actually found basically fine because it took like three minutes and she would just go crazy and then I would wash it off. But now what she wants to do is she wants to like replicate the Instagram makeup videos that she's always watching. So she wants to create a look and talk me through the look and tinker with different brushes and bronzers and foundations and whatever. And it takes so long and it is intensely boring to me. But this time I let her do it and she did it and I looked very shiny and a little bit sparkly. But it was a triumph, I think, that I let her do this thing that she really loves, even though I have zero interest in it whatsoever. My other triumph was that I told her friend Shira, no, you may not take video of the entire makeup process <laughs> and post it. That is not necessary. You I think that part's that. a That's fail. definitely a fail for all of us. No, I just don't need, need I don't think that that is, evidence. I don't, like, I am happy for Harper to do my makeup, but I also don't want to be the star of a video that I'm not interested in i'm teaching them that it's okay to say no to being in a web video ah. that is true but dan i feel like when you're doing this this is where my pointer of putting in your headphones and listening to a podcast or something you're interested in oh you but that like, doesn't work do at this. all because harper wants to know what i think about everything she's well, like I mean, what do you think say, of this i'll brush? share with you at the end if you would like this face <laughs> <laughs> this is, these are my terms and conditions yeah maybe i'll use that next time but no she just really wants to talk me through it and be like look at this brush here's what this brush does <laughs> I love it. I guess because I wouldn't let Good her job. be doing a video where she was talking it through that to her thousands of viewers. How about you, Elizabeth? Triumph or fail? So I also have a triumph. Three triumph day. Well, I think it's a triumph. We'll see. I took the kids to go stargazing as like a big evening, get out of the house, social distance field trip. And so we drove down to the beach and watched sunset. We brought out Jeff's telescope that he got when he was eight. And, um, you know, so Jeff's, you know, very big into space. And I used to work at NASA, so also big into space. And so we were so excited to like share this with the kids. And we live in this place that this should be like wonderful. We got to see Saturn's rings and Jupiter's moons and all of this stuff. And we just could not coach the kids onto the comet. So we had a little bit of cloud cover. And then also you need to use binoculars. And we for whatever reason, we couldn't quite get it in the telescope. We let them stay out to like 10, which for us is like very late. I have kids that are like headed to bed around six and then are asleep usually by seven. We have early mornings here. So that was like a huge deal. And then I have to play for you as they are telling their grandparents over Skype about this. This is what my enthusiastic one says this. This is Oliver, who was so excited. He says, I waited my whole life until I couldn't see a comet. Oh, my God. And I couldn't see the comet. So he's basically like, I didn't see it. And I don't care what else you showed me. I didn't get to see the comet. Now, we still have a few days. I waited my whole life life to see a comet. I waited my whole life. His whole (laughs) life to see a comet. Yep. And we failed him. Then... 
Teddy the virus coming through with this. I didn't see anything because I was locked in the car. You weren't locked in the car. Yes, I was. So you didn't see the comet? No. Is that because you fell asleep? Nope. Because he I was tells watching us what? You were locked he, in the car. Because he was locked in the car. That's what I said. He says, I didn't see anything because <laughs> I was locked in the car. <laughs> Guys, he was locked in the car because he fell asleep <laughs> in his car seat. And I rolled down the windows. And we're like, the little kids, the, the pictures on Instagram, they're sitting on top of the car. He is in the car seat asleep. Can't believe you locked him in the car and didn't let him see a I comet. locked him in the car. That's what he remembers. Yeah. That is... Homeschool fail. <laughs> Great. Have a whole lesson prepared. Nice on nothing. I take that whole thing as a triumph. Great evening activity. Way to let your kids stay up late, even though one of them couldn't succeed in staying up late. Agreed. Yeah. It's not your well, fault the comet sucks. Yeah. <laughs> the comet's around for a few more dates actually till the end of the month so i hear it sucks and can't be captured in telescopes so i'm not gonna worry about it (laughs) yeah i heard that you can't see it he waited his whole life (laughs) he waited his whole life all six years that's a long time (laughs) to wait to see a comment which you didn't even know about in fact nobody in the world knew about it till like a month ago so anyway elizabeth do you remember the great Halley's comet debacle of the late 80s when everyone was no i were you too young? Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I remember Haley's Comet coming. I remember the whole hail bop. This comet is such a big deal that we're all going to drink like Kool-Aid and, you know, die thing. Right. Haley's Comet was just everyone was very excited about it. As I recall, it didn't even have like the cool comet tail. And it was really far away and really small. And I think for whatever reason, people just really thought it was going to be like an awesome comet streaking across yeah. the sky. My memory is just everyone I knew in Wisconsin being like, yeah, I saw the fucking comet. It sucked. (laughs) (laughs) I do feel like that technology has really ruined this because (laughs) you can like go online and see these beautiful pictures and you can see both tails, you know, and the kids are sitting there and they're like, what do you mean you have to find it? Like we're supposed to be able to see it blazing through the sky. It's supposed to be an omen of doom, but actually it's just a thing that you can barely see. All right. Well, before we move on, let's do the business. Tune in to The Kids Are Asleep, a hilarious Slate Live show starring our very own Jamila Lemieux. She's live Thursday nights talking about the joys and frustrations that come with modern parenthood and modern life. This week, she's talking with former porn actress and director Cinnamon Love. To catch the show live, just go to Slate's Facebook page. If you missed the premiere last week, you can find Jamila's conversation with comedian Roy Wood Jr. on Slate's YouTube page. We'll put a link in our show notes. One more time, the show is Thursday, July 23rd at 10 p.m. Eastern Time, 7 p.m. Pacific Time. While you're on Facebook, join our active, moderated parenting community filled with people giving and receiving parenting advice. Just search for Slate Parenting on Facebook. To stay up to date on all of Slate's parenting content and shows, sign up for Slate's parenting newsletter. It's the best place to be notified about our parenting content, including care and feeding, mom and dad are fighting, and much more. Plus, it's a fun personal email from Dan directly to your inbox. So sign up at slate.com slash parenting email. And Slate Plus today, should parents tickle their kids? Here's a quick sneak peek of what you'll hear if you have Slate Plus. It was so drilled into me that nobody was really to touch me at all except for my parents. You know, that the majority of the touching would be my mother. And, you know, my father was trusted, but everybody else was pretty much like, a suspect. <laughs> I hate to say it that way, but like, you know, even as a family member, it was just like, okay, yeah. don't let people 
tickle you. Don't let people play with your hair. You know, you're only hugging people that are on the approved hug list. To hear segments like that and get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. It's just $35 for your first year. It's a great way to support all of your favorite Slate podcasts. And you won't hit a paywall on the site, so you can keep up with all of Slate's journalism. So if you'd like to support Mom and Dad Are Fighting, go to slate.com slash plus and join Slate Plus today. All right, let's get into our first listener question. It's being read by the fabulous Shasha Leonard. Hey, folks. I manage a website and have a team of five full-time people, all of whom are parents. For the record, I myself do not have kids. When COVID hit, we struggled as a team, and I struggled as their manager to figure out how to continue doing our work and also manage children. We were already a remote team before COVID, and we have a workplace culture that allows for very flexible schedules. So we initially thought, we're cool, we got this. But as the months have dragged on, as partners have gotten laid off, as kids are home requiring attention and homeschooling, it's all put an enormous stress on everyone. Everyone is exhausted. No one does their best work or their best parenting while exhausted. And this just isn't sustainable. Now it's becoming clear that getting back to normal isn't going to happen anytime soon. We need new solutions for working parents. While I can't help all parents, I at least want to help the parents on my team. But no matter how I look at it, this just seems like an impossible situation. I can only cut back hours and workloads so much. My team members can only contort their schedules so far. Do you have any suggestions or ideas? Are there any examples we can take from other cultures where there was already a better work-life balance? I feel like the time for radical, innovative ideas is now, and I'm ready to make it happen. Help. Boss lady just trying to do right. Gosh. This lady. You're already winning in my book, Letter Writer. I know, boss lady. We're proud of you, boss lady. We are so proud of you. You are the best boss. For being one of our (laughs) child-free listeners, of course. Yes. But also that you're thinking so hard about all this and putting so much care into how you treat your employees who are parents. That is meaningful. You're right that this isn't sustainable. I think everyone is discovering right now that the ways we are all living are not sustainable for the amount of time that it appears we're all going to be dealing with this pandemic here in America, I hasten to add. It's really important that you recognize that. And it's also important that you recognize that, of course, you don't have the ability really to change the state of your employees' child rearing or their homeschooling or the things that they have to do at home. The thing that you have the ability to change is the workplace environment and the expectations within the workplace. So the first thing I would ask is, can you, boss lady, rethink what this website does and what its goals are? Should you be publishing significantly less right now? Should your revenue targets be shifted or should they be eliminated entirely? You know, what kind of leeway do you have with whoever owns this website to implement some kind of totally different strategy for, say, the next six months or nine months, however long it takes for things to get back to normal. And I ask all this because it seems to me that right now, any business that's not essential, i.e. if you're not a hospital or you know some other truly essential business, your moral imperative, I think, is to be doing everything you can to transform 
your business model so that your goal is no longer to maximize revenue or to maximize shareholder value or to gain market share or even, and this is hard for a lot of people necessarily, to deliver the best product to the world. Your goal should be to keep all your employees and to keep paying them and to keep them as safe as possible. And that means probably treading water as a business until things get back under control. And now that is not economically feasible for many businesses, mostly because the government hasn't really done enough to support businesses during this time to help them do the things that they need to do to keep their employees safe, paying bars to close, for example, a thing that the government absolutely should be doing. You know, there are the, the loans, which involved a lot of hoop jumping and which not all, everyone who needed got or was eligible for. And there are plenty of businesses, and your business boss lady may be one of those, in which pressure from the top to maximize revenue every single day means basically that you can't like take your foot off the gas even for a second. That if revenues drop, you will be told by your bosses that you have to fire everyone. So maybe you're in that situation, and we can talk about what you do in that kind of situation in a moment. But you seem to me to be describing a situation where you have some degree of autonomy and some degree of authority over these kinds of decisions. So I think the first and most important thing you can do and should do is transform the mission of the company to the extent that you can so that everyone just has way less work to do. So that you are paying everyone the same amount of money and they just do a lot less work, including you if possible. But that should be your first goal. And that's a simple and dumb answer, but it's an answer that a lot of people find difficult to initiate because of the way they associate the product that their job puts out with themselves. It's hard for me to think about just doing less work or doing work less well or just being more mediocre at my job. But that's actually pretty crucial at a time like this. And being willing to accept that and to encourage it on the part of your employees is one way that you can help them all survive this time. What do the rest of you think? One thing that immediately jumps out at me, and I think that's great advice, Dan, would be having one-on-one conversations about what a more livable work schedule might look like. Because there are people who have a, a very different experience trying to work while parenting if, say, they were able to begin their work day at 11 o'clock in the morning or at one o'clock in the afternoon as opposed to nine o'clock in the morning or if they were able to be online overnight while perhaps other employees are sleeping, that's the time when their children are also asleep and they can be productive. And there may be multiple people that are in a a situation where they can be supportive of one another and working collaboratively during non-traditional hours, but there would need to be some conversation had to put that into practice. But I would say leaning into what do these individual people need? Because everyone's needs are different. And I think creating individualized work plans that take into account just what sort of time they need to be able to give to their children, in addition to scaling down their scope of work, could be, I think, a a good solution. I love that idea, Jamila, like, because everybody's needs are different. And so being able to assess what those needs are. I was really struck by this question. It really hones in on one of the differences we noticed when we were living in the Netherlands, which was that several years back, the Netherlands uh, just kind of noticed that the focus on the family was not there. And as a result, their society was facing some detrimental impacts. And so put into play some legislation that allowed for a more flexible 
um, work environment. So they have like a mama's day and a papa's day where they routinely work from home and then they are in charge of the children. Of course, most schools in the Netherlands have a half day on Wednesdays. Working from home with your child is something that they are accustomed to. I think one of the things that we saw there was sort of this concept of any 40 hours. And I mean, the Dutch, necessarily not everyone's working 40 hours. They are much more focused on getting the work done. And so as a result, you see far less meetings and anything that can be done by email is done by email and not in a meeting. Anything that can be done in kind of a more productive way to get the task done, that is what's given priority. And so they buy themselves a lot of time there. The expectation is not that you are like sitting in your office or sitting at your desk, but that the tasks you have been assigned are completed by the assigned deadline. And I understand like for all jobs that some jobs are about the time spent there. But it sounds like if you have some flexibility with this website job, and and this is kind of what Jamila was talking about, and really Dan, like the the any 40 hours. So you give us the 40 hours that you can give us. And if that means that you're taking short breaks every 45 minutes, or if that means that you're doing it all at a different time, I think giving that kind of flexibility allows you to account for like children being there. There's also a bunch of studies that really demonstrate that the 40-hour work week is not the most productive model. And there's a uh, Ohio University infographic that we can link to in the show notes that shows how much production goes up as you decrease those work hours. But by really focusing on what do you need to get done such that your business stays afloat, which is what Dan was talking about, and then letting people do those tasks. So, okay, we're going to pay you what we've been paying you. And if your task is done and it takes you know less hours, great. And I think what they found in the Netherlands in doing this is that people are willing to sit down and be much more efficient because they can do it when it's convenient for them and they can meet their other needs. So... By not having a lunchtime meeting, you know, it means that they can handle their kids at lunch, get them set up, do whatever they need to do. I think the other big piece is to make interruptions acceptable. And this idea that we are like working in an office environment and just understand like the kids are around. And yes, maybe they're not as focused. But I think if you just say, we understand that you're working with kids. And if you need to take a few minutes to go get them organized or to have your kid working at your feet, that that is okay. And again, either this concept of any 40 hours that you can give us or the idea of like just getting these tasks done and shifting to the mentality of it's not how many hours you put in, but that each of these requirements is getting met and let your team work on that. Like maybe there are people that are okay picking up some extra tasks or they do those tasks faster, uh, whereas other people might need a little bit more time or this particular task is really hard to do with a toddler, but someone with an infant doesn't have a problem because they can you know, it's more about not being on Zoom. I don't know how all of that works. I think that goes to Jamila's point of asking each employee, like, what is stressing you out about the situation? But I think that, you know, Boss Lady, by asking us these questions, that's definitely the right step. And I think if more of us thought about this and tried to find these innovative ways, we will find things that work even when we're not kind of in COVID times. There are so many studies that show that this produces better workers, like allowing people to feel secure at home means you are a better worker. So maybe this is a time to try to figure out what that looks like for you. And how many things are you doing that don't really need to get done? Like how many meetings are you having that are not really purposeful? How many things on your kind of checklist are there that don't actually need to get done? I think there's probably a lot of 
waste and little things that we got used to doing that don't really need to be done. It is funny to hear you talk about like the Dutch get your 40 hours wherever you can get them policy. It's true that Dutch people don't work past those 40 hours for sure. And if you get your stuff done early, that's great. But the expectation is definitely that you will get your tasks done in that time. And if you stay late or like work a lot at night, bosses think you're very weird and that you must be quite inefficient. Yeah, you're like shamed. If you stay after, you're shamed. Uh, And part of that, of course, is a result of being very conscious and cognizant about how you assign work and assigning discrete tasks that are accomplishable in the amount of time that people have. So you talk a lot in your letter, boss lady, about, well, I can only cut hours so much. But one way to cut hours without actually cutting hours is to just make very clear to people, not your expectation, but your requirement that during this time, they not go above and beyond. They don't work when they've finished the task that you need them to do. They don't just log on at 8 p.m. to make sure that no one needed them if that's not something that's in their schedule. They don't just write one more piece or blog post or whatever just because, well, we just need as many pieces as we can possibly get. That's alien in a lot of workplaces. It shouldn't be. I mean, it would be great if the American workplace just never had those expectations. But right now, particularly to the extent that you can explicitly tell your employees, I don't want you doing that shit right now. That is an enormous load you can take off everyone's minds. I just want to add, you know, we know that this is a website, but we don't know exactly what stuff you guys are doing with this website. But if you're in a position to rethink or reimagine what success looks like in terms of the content that you're creating or the work that you're doing, then now would be a great time to do that. I mean, I think kind of countrywide, we need an expectation shift. Like in so many of these things that we're facing right now, what we are seeing is that the expectations were really high to start out with and unattainable. And now we have like stressed the system and we just can't meet those and we're still holding people to them. And it's easy to keep adding things and say, when I um, worked for NASA, we had to do all these like green light charts and we were never allowed to not have the chart be green. And it was like, then what is the purpose? Like, sometimes there's just not enough money or just not enough things to make the chart be green. But nobody ever wanted to go and say like, well, we're in yellow or we're in red. Like they wanted to say like, well, we can do it with less money and less people. And I just think like the time is to just say like, listen, we are fighting this pandemic. We need to be focused on that. And part of that is focusing on this like core family group that we all have, right? And if we don't take care of that, like, what is the point? Adjusting your expectations across the board for for what your business can do, what you can do, what you can do as a parent, what you should be doing. I think that is kind of the mental shift that you have to make for every, be it business, schools, whatever. You know, the government is apparently not going to help us make that shift. So I think being like boss lady and saying, let's, you know, change our expectations of ourselves too. Yeah. Two more quick things. One, boss lady, you should also be asking these questions about yourself. Even though you are not a parent, you should be asking yourself, what are ways that I can decrease what I'm doing? What are ways that I can find work-life balance? Especially as the boss, you may find you that you want to take on all these things to try and save those parents on your staff. To the extent that you can, your goal should be to eliminate the things that are necessary, not to just do them yourself because that's easier. Two, One thing that the government has done that you can and should still take advantage of is emergency FMLA. 
You have all these parents, presumably a lot of them have kids whose childcare or school situations are fucked up in some way. You should be encouraging them to say, take a day a week. The government pays you two thirds of their salary for that day. You can probably cover the other one third of their salary for that day. You can save an enormous amount of money. And so the revenue maybe doesn't become that big of a deal. And also all those parents on your staff have suddenly been given this gift of a full day each week that they can just get the shit done that they need to get done outside of their lives. And that can make an enormous difference too. They may not feel comfortable taking this. They may be worried about taking it. They may think it's a betrayal of the website's mission to take it. It can be your job as their manager to tell them not only can they take it, you would love them to do it. Good luck, boss lady. Thanks for asking. You're, You're great. great. Yeah, I agree. Well, good luck. Thank you so much for your question. If you have a burning question, send it our way. Email us at slate.com. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. If your child is approaching college age, you're probably already panicking about how much higher education costs. Should you take out loans? Should your child? Slate's Rachel Hampton just published a fascinating package on student debt, interviewing adults about how their debt has impacted their lives. Welcome, Rachel. Hi, all. Thank you for having me. Hi, Rachel. Hello. Rachel. (laughs) What kinds of stories did you hear from your interviewees about what effect the debt they carried had on them, how the the debt changed their life decisions or their work decisions or other things about their lives. Yeah, I mean, for a lot of them, it was just this constant thing in the back of their head. For most of the people that I talked to, only a few were like, yeah, I only would think about it when I pay it every month. Pretty much all of them were like, whenever I'm making a major life decision, whenever anything comes up that I need to buy, whenever I'm thinking about buying a new car or moving or taking a new job, I'm thinking about how I'm going to pay my student loan debt. And then for the people who have paid all of it off, what they talked about was the freedom from having to think about it. They were like, yeah, not having to pay this much every month is obviously amazing, but I think what's the greatest thing about having all my student loans paid off is just not having that burden, not having to think about how this is going to affect me and not thinking about like what choices I don't have access to because I have this amount of money I have to pay every month. Like from a young age, we really pitch college as it isn't optional and it's like the only path. And so I was really moved by how many people that ends up affecting in ways that they didn't see when they sort of got, you know, started down this path. On average, how much debt do students have when they finish school? So for 2018, I think it's between $20,000 and 24K, although we're seeing those numbers going up across the board. And I know you found like for Black and low income students, it can be even more, right? 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, it gets higher because, I mean, a lot of those families just kind of aren't as well versed in like student loan debt. And then they also, the middle class kind of gets squeezed in between people who are like very low income and people who can pay all the way like $100,000 a year for college. Are there any respondents who, you know, even if they haven't paid the loans back, would say it doesn't bother them or that they're grateful to have been able to take the money out, even if it's been a challenge to repay it? Yeah, I mean, I think most of the people that I talked to are very grateful for the education that they had. Like, even if they do have this kind of weight that they're dealing with, most of them are very much just like, I wouldn't be where I am without it. Just why did it have to cost so much? There were a few, I think more recent grads who were kind of like, yeah, I have this student loan debt, but it's not as much. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that they just grew up at a time where people were talking a lot more about student loan debt, like on social media or on the internet. There's a lot more information about what it means to carry a lot of student loan debt after you graduate. And so they just had more access to, I guess, people's stories about it. When they started college, this was on their mind versus a lot of people who went to college kind of in the early aughts who were like, Student loan debt wasn't necessarily something they didn't think they could pay off. They were like, I'll be able to handle this. It's just what everyone does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I'd be curious to hear what some of these folks had to say about the reason that they chose institutions where they'd have to take out a lot of loan money. Would you say that most of them were describing a situation like your own where you felt like you were choosing the best school for the degree program that you wanted? Or are there other factors? Like I went to a private HBCU where the tuition was pretty high. And I know there were a lot of us who went there into schools like it because we wanted to be at an HBCU. And had we gone to other institutions, we would have paid less. We, you know, many of us would have gotten scholarship money. There may have been grants that were not made available to us at our institutions that we could have got elsewhere that would have made college a lot cheaper. But we were paying for the culture and we were paying for the history and we were paying for the name and the community experience that we were going to have to mixed results, I'd say. Yeah. So I would say that a fair amount of the people that I spoke to chose the colleges that they ended up going to largely based off of like the quality of the program, like the mental health counselor chose to go to Columbia's teachers college and a PhD program for mental health based on the kind of research that was being done there. She really wanted to study microaggressions. And so there were, I think, were professors there she really wanted to have access to. Other people chose kind of based on location. The 60-year-old teacher who has like $200,000 in student loan debt, it was close to the town that he was living in. What I found is of the people who responded to the email, not a lot of people had those like big ticket or like big number loan debts from undergrad. And so that was actually something I was looking for when I was coming through was just people who did end up taking out a lot. And there weren't a lot of people in that situation as far as people who responded to the email, but that's also just kind of a product of Slate's audience. Meaning there weren't a lot of people who had huge undergrad loans. The big loans were coming from grad school. Yeah, a lot of it was grad school. Okay. I so know so many people who end up doing grad school as a way to get out of paying their undergrad loans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that actually maybe seems like not the greatest idea. Long <laughs> yeah, probably not the best investment <laughs> like decision because uh, you're still accruing debt even if you're not yeah. paying for it. <laughs> so what can parents be doing now or like thinking about now as they're getting ready to send like kids to college I guess sort of what steps can they take that make a difference? Because obviously there's like 
societal changes that can happen. I lived in Europe for a number of years and obviously it's an entirely different system there. And like the idea of carrying college debt is crazy to them. You know, since we can't change the system, like what can we as parents do to influence changes going forward? Like with our students? I think what helped most for me going to college was just being very honest about what it means to pay an extra like 200 to 500 to 600 dollars a month when you're first getting started in your career if you're not going to grad school or deferring that just what it means not to have access to that money every month i think it means talking to them about what earnings they're going to get from their degree and whether or not it's worth going to like an expensive private school for like a degree in english literature when they could go to one that's cheaper Like, for example, I went to Northwestern for journalism because I was fully aware that journalism was a very small field, that it was contracting and that the earning potential wasn't high and that I needed kind of that kind of institutional backing Mm -hmm. to get my foot in the door to be able to have the career that I had. Like, I knew I wasn't going to be able to do an unpaid internship straight out of college. Like, I knew I had to get a full-time job. And so the school is more expensive than the ones that were in state, but I didn't have to spend as much time after graduation trying to get a job, basically. And so it's kind of conversations that you need to have, kind of talking to people in their, like, the field that they want to be in about what the first five to ten years out of undergrad look like. And if they're 18 and don't know what they want to do, which is completely normal, I think it's fair to be like, you don't need to make that decision now, but don't take on a lot of student loans to figure out that decision, basically. Right, because as a parent, what really struck me about this package was we pitch college as the thing that is going to open up every door for you, for your kids in their life. And the lesson of this package is that debt closes a bunch of those doors. Mm -hmm. It makes the sort of wide open future you imagine for your kids untenable in many cases because certain decisions they would like to be able to make, they just can't make because they know they have this debt sitting on them every month. And being as honest as you can with them about what, as you say, those five to 10 years after graduation might really look like in their situation and how they can best position themselves to keep as many of those doors open as possible seems really, really valuable and also hard. And there's as parents, we have this, at least I have this thing where I want my kids to view their future as limitless. And so it's hard for me sometimes to talk to them honestly about the stuff that's going to be tough or about the reason that Lyra's belief that she's just going to move straight to New York and be a writer and live in an apartment without even knowing how to cook or have a bank account is like reasonable. But like being as honest as you can with them seems really valuable. When you were talking to all of these people, what did they tell you about what they heard from their parents or from their schools before they made these decisions about what role that might play in their life going in? I mean, for the people that I found had the most student loan debt, a lot of that came from their parents were immigrants and had no understanding of the American education system or that they were first generation students. So they just didn't really have any experience. There was no one in their life they could necessarily ask about what it meant to take out this amount of student loan debt. For the people who had paid it off or who had lesser student loan debts, they were like, my father was an accountant or my father like had some kind of (laughs) 
like familiarity with like finance and budgeting. And so they sat down and had these honest conversations about, you know, we can't pay for your undergrad, but we can help you look at what student loan interest rates are like, like what that actually means. Like you can take out federal, but you can't take out private. And so it was very much the people who had access to those conversations as they were applying to schools. It made all the difference between how much student loan debt they had at the end of it. Rachel, in talking to all these people and thinking about debt as much as you've thought about it, doing all these interviews, do you have regrets over the decision you made to take on the amount of debt you did? Or do you think in the end it was the right thing for you? Do you is there anything you think you should have done differently? I feel comfortable with the amount of debt that I took out. I mean, I hate paying for it, but Northwestern has a policy where you can't actually take out more than $20,000 in federal student loan debt. So... That was part of the reason why I chose the school that I ended up going to. And so, a year or total? Total for the entire total. four years. You can't graduate with more than twenty thousand mm-hmm. dollars in student loan debt. Does that just lead people to take a shitload of private loans? Yeah. So it's not actually the best system <laughs> okay. if you think about it. Um, but Northwestern likes to tout it as like, oh, this is a great <laughs> thing. But it's also just like. There were definitely times where I was like, I wish I could have had more access to federal student money instead of considering taking out private loans. But I mean, to be completely honest, like I was in a privileged position because my parents like helped me a lot in college. I am incredibly fortunate to have parents who were like, this is a time where we're going to help you because like, we don't want to be helping you when you're 30, basically. <laughs> They're like, we will if we have to, but we prefer not to be. And so I was really lucky in that regard. I also had like jobs on campus. So I think that for where I'm at in my career, I don't think I would be where I'm at if I hadn't gone to Northwestern and if I hadn't taken out those student loan debts. And I think that this project actually made me like very grateful that I had parents who could talk me through like what it meant to take out that money and what it means to have to be paying that off for the next however many years and to make an informed decision where I don't regret the one I made at 17 or 18, like now, a few years into my career. Do you have any advice for parents that maybe don't have the kind of financial literacy that you were talking about? Like, where can they go get this? Or where can, like, students that don't have someone in their lives to help them, is there a place they can start kind of thinking about this and getting educated in that way? Hopefully they have a college counselor at the school who has some level of knowledge. I can't say mine was like the most helpful in terms of finances, but that's a good place to start. If there are schools that they really want to go to, become extremely familiar with their financial aid department. Do not be afraid to call them. (laughs) They will definitely call you when the loans come due. So please feel free to call them beforehand and just ask them, what's the loan to grant ratio? Like, are there like work study jobs? Like, how much debt do you allow people to take out? How do scholarships factor into this, et cetera, et cetera? Can you appeal financial aid decisions? And what does that process look like? I think that becoming very familiar with whatever school's financial aid office looks like is very important. And then I think there are a lot of resources online. I don't really have any off the top of my head, but I feel like there are a lot of student loan debt advocacy organizations out there right now as people try to get that kind of stuff canceled. Like your advice is that you need to be seeking out this information. Like don't yes. just kind of blindly go into yes. the situation and it, it's not too early to start thinking about what your financial situation is going to look like when your student starts and asking those questions. Like you said, call and ask and don't be afraid to ask those questions. 
Yeah, definitely. Become familiar with FAFSA, like all that stuff, things that might affect like your financial aid package year to year. Like my brother was in school for the first two years I was in college. So my financial aid was higher those two years and then he graduated and like it got lower. So like those little things that like you're like the first years, the package looks great. But like what's going to look like for the whole Mm. like four years I'm going to be here. I think the one thing that even parents who think of themselves as financially literate sometimes have trouble with is this question of, oh, my kid wants to go into this field that I don't know shit about. How do I understand what the financial picture looks like realistically in those five to 10 years after graduation? And that's, you know, that's just yet another of the one million ways where salary transparency really benefits people. And so in fields where either because you're a public employee, so salaries are public, or in fields where people have been making real efforts towards salary transparency. You know, I just think parents, for example, of kids who want to go into journalism, don't know anything about journalism, don't have a real sense of what that looks like for people starting out. They have no idea how low the salaries actually are. And so to the extent that you can find people in those fields who you trust and who are willing to talk to you honestly about what those salaries really are like, like I wouldn't avoid that information and I would also try and actively seek out that to the extent that you can. Also union contracts. Union contracts. A lot of union contracts are out there right now. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yep. If your field has a union, then you can ask them what the salary for is for different positions and they will very happily tell you. So that's also helpful too. This has been like great practical advice, but also like just really pertinent to all of us. And uh, if you haven't gone and checked out Rachel's investigation, we have a link in the show notes and we really highly encourage you to take a look at the profile she put together and the article. It is so So, good. It is so good. Thank you again, Rachel, for your excellent reporting and for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thanks, Rachel. And with that, Rachel's piece is our first recommendation, but we've got some more for you. Dan, what are you recommending? I am recommending America's hottest new sport, pickleball. This is in addition to the tennis we've been playing with the kids. We have also recently picked up pickleball and been playing a lot of it. I had never heard of pickleball before two months ago, maybe. And all of a sudden I am seeing it everywhere. When I was walking all over my neighborhood, I saw people setting up pickleball courts, like chalking them out in cul-de-sacs taking over tennis courts and playing pickleball there. And the pool that we go to created a pickleball court this year. They transformed the basketball court into a pickleball court. And uh, it's been totally great. Pickleball is basically like small tennis, or I sort of think of it as enormous human-sized ping pong. (laughs) You're on two sides of a low net and you're like hitting a wiffle ball back and forth to each other with paddles. And because it's a wiffle ball, it doesn't really move that fast. And so it's a great game or sport for kids to play with adults or for adults to play with older adults. It's actually one of the few games that can be played multi-generationally. And so we've just been playing a lot of it and the kids will play with us and they find it fun. And Alia and I can play together and get away from the kids and we find it fun. And Alia, even though she hasn't really ever played that much tennis or other racket sports, she can be competitive right away with me because it's, that's just the way the game works. Like everyone is basically about as good at pickleball as everyone else. (laughs) 
the great equalizer. <laughs> yeah, it's great. I mean, it's like, that's really crucial. It's like no fun to play a game and have everyone crush you all the time. It's pretty fun to play and crush everyone, but it's, I guess it's less fun for them. The person I really want to come on and talk about pickleball at some point, I want to have a whole conversation about pickleball with beloved former mom and dad are fighting co-host Allison Benedict, rest in peace, mm-hmm. because she and her husband have been playing pickleball all summer. And she described it to me as, as she wants to write a piece that's basically how we made it through the pandemic. Thanks to pickleball. Like she thinks it has <laughs> saved her family. And so I'm very excited to have that conversation. Oh but anyways, gosh. pickleball is super fun. Not that hard to do. You can basically do it in any big open pavement space. And it's a great family game. Love it. Sounds like fun. Jamila, how about you? <laughs> My recommendation is not as fun. It's a kid's book about divorce. It was written by an author by the name of Ashley Sempo, who is a mommy and a wellness advocate who oftentimes writes about race and culture. And I followed her for quite some time. And she, you know, reached out and said she was writing a book and asked if she could send it to me. And so I was like, cool. And so I didn't expect it to be this. I've been following the a kid's book about account on Instagram for a while. And I think it's a pretty cool concept. They've got uh, books about these, you know, somewhat heady concepts like divorce and identity and racism and poverty and uh, anxiety and all types of things that it's obviously important to talk to our children about, but that can be very difficult if you're not a trained expert parenting advice show host like us. So they've got these very tidy, very easy to comprehend books written for kids ages six and up. And so a kid's book about divorce, it's I think really cool and really easy to read. It doesn't have pictures. It just has some words that I think would help most children, um, most small children understand what it means for their parents who were once together living in one household to decide to separate. And I think you should check it out. So at kidsbookabout.com, you can order a kid's book about divorce or a kid's book about any number of complicated subjects. Well, I am sticking with the space theme for my recommendations as well. So it's actually the 51st anniversary of the moon landing, in addition to having this comment. So fun. Uh, So I am recommending a fun graphic novel that's called Rocket to the Moon, Big Ideas That Changed the World by Don Brown. And what I love about this book is that not only does it kind of talk about the facts about the moon landing, but it also incorporates like a lot of the more questionable concepts and that it was more sort of involved. And that includes like that Von Braun, our main scientist, was a Nazi. It talks about like the budgetary issue and basically what we put aside during that time to enable us to go to the moon. And then it does a nice job of sort of touching on the hidden figures aspect, but also saying like, why are there no women in this room? Like over and over and over again. So I think it's a nice way to celebrate something, but also talk about kind of the way in which it came about and the people that suffered or that sort of the things that happened on on the way to the moon landing and puts in perspective like this thing that is celebrated and I think should be celebrated but the consequences of that as well and along with that I you know I'm a huge fan of the junior ranger badges and NASA actually has one that you can download and do for free and there'll be a link to that in the show notes they are not sending out badges right now because everyone's working from home so I guess they're not there to get the packets but you can do it and download a badge and it was a great way to kind of cover some space topics in a fun lesson that I didn't have to prepare and the oldest child could just sit down and do it which bought me 45 minutes so that's always a win but to get the badge do you have to see a comet no (laughs) 
you have to find the word common in a word search. I, no. I've been waiting my whole life to find the word common yes, in a word search. Yes. I mean, I haven't told Oliver yet that he's not getting an actual oh. badge because, <laughs> I mean. He's been through enough. That would just be that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that's our show. One more time, if you have a question, email us at slate.com or post to the Slate Facebook group. Just search for Slate Parenting. Mom and Dad are Fighting is produced by Rosemary Belson. For Jamila Lemieux and Dan Coyce, I'm Elizabeth Higgins.